I think creativity is a key skill I've seen in people who succeed. And creativity, I think, comes in two ways. There's creative ways that you can express yourself. That means through storytelling, through creative endeavors, through writing, and so on. But there's also creative problem solving. Right? So how you actually look at problems, how you solve those. So it's not about being, oh, are you analytical or you're not analytical. I think there's creative problem solving in both ways. Either you can look at expressive creativity or you can look at creative problem solving where you have really deep, gnarly problems that you have to figure out how to solve. For example, you've got to come up with a new business model. You've got to come up with a new pricing strategy. You need deep technical and probably analytical background to solve that. And you need a lot of creativity if you're going to do it differently or better. Caution. Listening to this podcast may motivate you to make positive changes in your life, identify ways to accelerate your career trajectory, and develop a path towards financial freedom. This is the Career Meets World podcast, and I'm your host, Edward Gorbis. And I've spent the last 10 years focused on helping thousands of people advance their career while in parallel teaching a secret recipe to reach financial independence. And I'm here to share the untold stories of successful people and teach thousands of listeners how to develop a growth mindset. Our minds are malleable and everyone has the power to change their mindset through perseverance, dedication, and a passion for learning. So if you're ready to skyrocket your business and financial literacy, turn up the volume and let's dive right in. This is the Career Meets World podcast. On today's show, I wanted to bring on somebody with a magical talent for bringing people together and inspiring them to become the best version of themselves. Welcome Robin Daniels. He's the CMO at Matterport, where his responsibilities include all marketing, brand, communications, and go-to-market initiatives to bring the Matterport vision to life across all channels. Before joining Matterport, Robin was the CMO at WeWork. And prior to that, Robin held multiple leadership positions at LinkedIn, Salesforce, and Box, and works with many startups as an advisor and mentor. Robin is passionate about the intersection of technology, the physical world, and community, and how they come together to create greater impact for the individual and for the world. Having spent two decades at cutting-edge tech companies across the U.S. and Europe, Robin can often be found speaking or writing about leadership, technology, impact, and fulfillment. He was born and raised in Copenhagen, Denmark, where he also went to school. Thanks so much for joining the show today, Robin. Welcome to the party. How's your day been so far? So far, so good. It's getting really hot here. I can tell summer's on its way. So I live in the peninsula here in California in the Bay Area. And yesterday, it peaked at nearly 100 degrees. So summer is definitely coming. It's definitely a beautiful time of the year. Everyone's getting excited, especially as the world's ramping back up a little bit. I'm excited to unpack a lot of different topics with you today, and you have an incredible background. You've worked at so many great companies and reputable ones across the Bay Area. You recently joined a revolutionary and up-and-coming company called Matterport as their chief marketing officer. It's an incredible feat, extremely excited to see where you take things and how you expand the brand and reputation of the organization. And as we start in our conversation today, I'd love to really understand what is Matterport, what's it all about, and what's your team building? So Matterport is a company that started around 
about 10 years ago. And we had a couple of founders who were really into technology, you know, classic Silicon Valley stereotypes, really deeply technical founders. And they, using the Microsoft Xbox Connect, you know, this new module that had come out, you put this little Connect module on top of your TV, and that module can kind of scan the room and can scan you. And suddenly the games become a lot more interactive because it's basically a, a laser scanner that can detect the presence of you and objects and so on. And they thought, well, this is so cool. Why couldn't we use this in a commercial setting? So they actually hacked an Xbox Connect, took out the components, and created the first 3D camera back, I think it was in 2011 or so. And they really quickly realized that there was a, a huge commercial opportunity for 3D. And so they started making these cameras and selling them. And now, about you know, 10 years later or so, here in 2020, we have become kind of the gold standard when it comes to 3D scanning of spaces, matterporting of spaces. If you want to sell your home, you better have a 3D tour of that space. If you want to use something to sell office space, you better have a 3D tour of that. And I was first introduced to, to Matterport when I was over at WeWork, when I was heading up marketing there. And I saw the technology and I was just super impressed with what it allowed us to do. As you can imagine, being at WeWork that is opening new office locations all the time, and you constantly get a barrage of people coming in who want to see the office space, which is awesome, but it's not very time efficient. So the idea was if we could put all the WeWork offices online and let people just browse them at their own leisure online, they could go see five spaces, 10 spaces, 20 spaces, and figure out which one is the right one for them. You know, it saves them time, saves them money, saves the environment. And of course, it also saves WeWork a bunch of money. So I was introduced to it at WeWork and I was really impressed with it. So when I left WeWork at the end of last year, after that whole thing kind of went south pretty quickly, I started just looking around and one of the companies I was introduced to was Matterport. Even back then when I was introduced to them, it was still kind of a specialty camera company that was focused on you know, using high-end digital cameras to scan spaces. But one of the things that was fascinating to me was the idea of opening up the platforms you can use any camera, not just a specialty camera, but you could use cameras that you can buy on Amazon or even your smartphone. So what we just launched three weeks ago in the beginning of May was the ability to use your own device, your iPhone, your iPad, to scan any space. So suddenly you unlock the opportunity for billions of people to be able to scan and put their spaces online in an interactive way. And the use cases we've seen since we've done that, especially during this pandemic, is restaurants are putting their spaces online, galleries, museums, shops are putting their, their spaces online because people can't go there physically, but people still want to engage in e-commerce, in shopping, in getting an experience. And this is as close to the real experience that you're probably going to get without being there in person. So that's why I joined the company. I think it's super fascinating. In the last two months, three months since uh, the pandemic hit, we've just seen a really rapid increase in the inquiries coming into the company for, for use of our technology. I'm really, really excited to see how you progress in your journey and how you build out the rest of the core team and continue to spread the word and help people understand there's incredible value, especially right now in the midst of the pandemic. And as we see how the world evolves, what value this type of technology can truly bring and empower many businesses to be found and seen on the internet. Matterport is certainly one of the most transformative companies right now. It's helped create the standard for digitizing the built world, and it's an incredible tool that's enabling a lot of businesses right now to showcase to the world 
what they have to offer. It's giving people access to spaces they might not ever be able to see personally, but allow them to enter it through a digital world. What you just touched on, though, really resonates with me. And it's often a topic that many people overlook or neglect to discuss. And it's one that you and I are going to uncover, which is around how do we think about inflection points in our career or transitions. And they're an imperative part of everyone's story because they shed light on how did we make decisions to move on to different organizations. And as you had recently made this transition from WeWork to Matterport, let's dig into that a little bit more. I'd love to really understand what was that like for you? How did you go about that decision-making process? It's a, it's a great question that has so many different facets of answering it. Uh, and it all depends on where I was in my life. I recently wrote about failure on LinkedIn, kind of one of my key platforms that I used to just share my thoughts and connect with people in that way that I find very genuine. And I wrote about some of the failures I've had and how I've learned the most from those failures. When I look back on my 20 years of being in tech in the Valley and around the world, honestly, some of the biggest pivot points have come from deep failures that I've had or deep moments of frustration where I knew to myself, if I let this continue, I would end up deeply, deeply unhappy or go down a path that I didn't want to look back on with, with joy. And one of the guiding principles of my life and the reason why I bought this one-way ticket from Copenhagen to the United States uh, when I was 21 is because I never want to live with regret. I never want to optimize my life for a time when I look back on it 10, 20, 50 years later saying, oh, I wish I could have done something or I should have done something. So I'd rather go for it. And even if it doesn't work out the way I thought of, at least I don't have the regret of not going for it. And so when I look back on, on my life and some of those points where you're stood before a crossroads and you have to choose, uh, for me, it's always trying to think about, well, what actions can I take now so I don't end up in this situation again? So for example, one of the, the early big failures I had was in the dot-com era, you know, the, the dot-com crash happened in March of 2000. And then every company was just starting to see red and laying off people. And I was one of those layoffs. So I was out of work and I ended up joining at a company called Veritas in 2001 in Mountain View. I joined this company and I was, you know, very junior. I was 22 at the time. I took over a product marketing manager and my boss asked me to go fly out to Florida to do a really important presentation to about, I think, three to 400 inside salespeople. And, you know, I, I really did not know much about the, the company or the platform. It, it, I'd been there less than two months and I flew out and I gave this presentation and it was just one of the worst experiences of my life. I completely, completely bombed this presentation. I was sweating. I had huge sweat pits under my arms. I was so nervous. I didn't look at the audience at all. I just looked at the screen. I was kind of reading the bullet points because I felt like I, I was so underprepared and I was standing in front of a crowd of people who knew way more about this than I did. And my delivery was just so poor. But afterwards, afterwards, I vowed to myself, I'm never going to let this happen again. <laughs> and it became such a pivotal point in my, in my life. And I went on this journey of just doing everything I could to become the best presenter in the world, at least according to my saying. I didn't want to mimic other people. You know, I don't want to be one of those people. I want to be like Steve Jobs or I want to be like Richard Branson and so on. That was not my goal. I just wanted to feel comfortable enough in my own skin on stage and be able to tell a good story. And so, of course, I read a lot of books. I think that was that was... That was step kind of one. Then I started taking some classes 
They were around presentation skills and how to master that. But the biggest uh, pivot point came for me when I started taking acting lessons. I started going to Stanford and Berkeley and taking acting lessons because I've always admired performers who stand up on a stage and use their entire range of emotions, their body, their voice to entertain an audience. And I thought, well, basically when you're giving a presentation, you're trying to entertain an audience. Um, and if I can use, learn how to use my voice, body, emotion, storytelling to do that, I can become one of the, the better presenters in my life that I've seen. And so I set that for, for a goal for myself and I went on this journey and, uh, you know, it wasn't always easy. I was standing up and doing acting lessons and doing monologues in front of a large class, you know, it was nerve wracking <laughs> doing uh, improv was nerve wracking, but those are the moments that kind of force you into thinking a little bit different and getting comfortable in, in your own skin. And, and so I've, I've tried to always, you know, remind myself, here are the lessons I learned, how to breathe, how to use my body and so on. But it's not always easy. I remember then fast forward to uh, 2019, my 19th day at WeWork, I was asked because my boss couldn't be there, can you go present in front of the whole company? I've been there 19 days. There was 10,000 people audience. I was so nervous. I really literally thought I was going to pass out in the backstage. Of course, I rehearsed and I rehearsed and I rehearsed, but I was so nervous because I'm like, I, I didn't feel like I had a connection with the, the team yet. I didn't feel like I had earned my right really to be there. But uh, the moment I stepped out on stage, everything just kind of went away in terms of my nerves. And it just went really, really well. And uh, because I started remembering the joy I got out of being in front of people. So you have to learn from your mistakes and, and figure a way to turn that into a strength uh, or at least learn from it in a way that you say, I never want to be in that situation again. And for me, that was definitely a, a key moment in my, in my failings. Gosh, you've shared so many good things there right now. And truthfully, I was there for that presentation back in January of 2019 at this point. You did an incredible job. And nobody could even tell that you probably rehearsed 100 times. Or certainly nobody knew all those moments in your life that led up to that moment where you were comfortable to speak in front of 10,000 people. Funny enough to share a candid story about myself, I had a similar experience back when I was about 10, 11 years old. I was the shyest kid. And for whatever reason, I had the audacity to tell my parents I wanted to become a model and an actor. Clearly, I'm not there right now, but that's what I wanted to become. And my parents were incredibly supportive because they realized maybe this is an opportunity to break Edward out of his shell. And it certainly was. And those types of moments where you get in front of an audience and force yourself to step out of that fear is where we learn a lot. And I've heard similar stories to the ones that you just shared where either somebody enrolls in an improv class or an acting class and it's challenging ourselves. That's what helps us learn and grow. And that's the beauty of what you were able to accomplish. What I do know is that we don't accomplish anything on our own. And there's a lot of moments where we partner with people, we network with people, we create our own board of directors to help us along the way. And along your journey, I'm curious, who were some of your greatest mentors or people that you looked up to? There's been so many, honestly. Um, and they, they, some of them have stayed with me throughout my life and some have just come and gone. You know, it's one of the the truth of modern life, I think, is that, you know, because people switch jobs more, at least I've switched jobs probably uh, quite a few times in the last two decades I've been in Silicon Valley. Some of the people I'm not really in touch with that much, 
but they had a huge influence on my career as a, as a person to guide me to where I am today. You know, I think of a, a guy I used to work for at Salesforce, a guy called Craig Swensrud. He was a big impact on my career in terms of how I thought about product marketing, how I thought about great storytelling, how I thought about launching products. And he pushed me hard. He really did. But he also, I think, made me better. And I'm forever grateful for him for, for doing that. Versus another guy I used to work with at Salesforce, a guy called Sean Whiteley. And he also became a long, lifelong friend and a, and a mentor to me. Because I think the way I saw him treat the team and really kind of make sure that the team cohesion was there, that nobody was playing for themselves. They were really playing for the better of everybody else. And he did it in such a way that it never felt threatening. He was never putting anybody on the spot. He was always just trying to foster a really collaborative, friendly, collegial environment where everybody felt like they could be themselves. And I, and I love that about him. And, and we're friends to this day. And I, I think of him as a great example of somebody who, I've learned a lot from throughout my career. I had a great boss at Box. Her name was Whitney Bauck, and she always believed in me, and she always thought that I could do more and more, and she always kept giving me more and more responsibility. But she didn't just give it to me blindly. She was always there as a guide and as a mentor whenever I, have, I would have questions or I didn't know what to do because I think it's one of the, the things that we have to get over if we have to grow in our career is this notion that we know everything. We certainly don't know everything. There's always more to learn. There's way more to learn from me every single day. And having people like that who you can trust and who can guide you along the way, I think has been absolutely critical in, in, in my career. And, and when I look at some of these people now, I think, you know, I'm so glad that they were there to guide me throughout. And I've just been a sponge and like learning from them, both the good and the bad. None of these people have been perfect. They've all had their own flaws in their own way. But you learn from that as well. You know, some of the, the mentors or teachers I've had in my life have been people where I've looked at them and said, I certainly don't want to become that way. I don't want to treat people that way. I don't want to talk to people that way. Right after Box, I, uh, I joined a small company. I don't even put this on my resume because I was only there a month. It didn't last long because, again, it's one of my failings. But I joined this company as a CMO up in San Francisco. And I felt like I was kind of lied to a little bit about the company, the culture, how well it was really doing. There was two founders. One of the founders was kind of a serial liar, which is always kind of just kind of lying to people <laughs> in a way that I'm like, this doesn't seem very ethical. And the other founder was kind of a bully. It's always kind of yelling at people in very unhealthy ways and treating people with disrespect. And uh, they didn't do it to me, maybe because I was coming in as an executive, but they did it to everybody else. And it really gave me a bad taste in my mouth about how you run a company, how you treat people, and how you know you, you can't create this kind of class system within a company. It just doesn't work. It never ends well. And, and certainly bullying never, never ends well. And it's one of the things that I always try to resist working with bullies or being part of cultures that have toxicity or bullies. And I've written even a lot about this you know, on LinkedIn and other places, but this notion in America more than other places I've seen where you have to have a little bit of sharp elbows or be a little bit rough in order to make it. There's a difference in being assertive and knowing what you want and being an asshole. And I think people have sometimes misinterpreted that to say I, I, it's okay being an asshole because I'll at least get what I want. It's very short-sighted. It, it might get you what you want short-term, but you're going to step on a lot of people in the way. And I've always said to anybody who's worked for me, I want you to do well. I want you to look back on this time when you are working for me and say, this is one of the best moments in your career. And I was there to nurture you. If you do well and you get results, but you get results in a collaborative way, I'm going to be your biggest fan. But if you get results and you leave a wake of destruction behind you, that's not okay with me. 
And I've had lots of those people in, in my teams before where you've had great performers on paper, like they've met the results and so on, but everybody hates working with those people, right? And so you're like, is that worth the, the overall cost to the culture and the, the performance of everybody else? And I just think it's not. It's not. And maybe it's because I come from Europe and I used to play soccer as a kid. And, you know, soccer is all about the team. You know, we've had great examples in history of soccer teams or football teams that have had superstars but have not done well because they've been centered around one person. It's really about a team sport. You know, everybody wins if everybody plays well together. And I've really tried to take that mentality with me wherever I've gone as a leader. Robin, you hit on something incredibly important, and there's really two elements to a great team, which is compassion and camaraderie. And it seems like any team that you've ever been able to cultivate, you've accomplished both. And I think a huge part of that is purely your leadership and your compassion for people. And all of this reminds me of one of my favorite books. And for anyone who knows me at all knows that I recommend this consistently. It's a book called Multipliers. And the author is Liz Wiseman. The entire book is about how the best leaders make everyone smarter and essentially build incredibly powerful and successful teams that operate efficiently with great culture. And one of my favorite quotes from that book, she talks about this extensively. And to somewhat paraphrase it, she says, it isn't how much you know that matters. What matters is how much access you have to what other people know. And to me, this is extremely powerful because it ultimately evokes this innate camaraderie that exists amongst people. And it requires a great leader to foster that culture. And that's what I find incredibly empowering in many successful companies. However, you and I both know that not every company is able to successfully create this type of culture and foster it consistently. They might have it one moment and they might lose it a year or two from now and people come and go and people are a reflection of that culture. So what is a good way for somebody transitioning into a new role or especially a new company, what is a good way to suss out whether or not a company has that core DNA within it and creates a culture where people can work together and develop that team dynamic? I have a test that I do. One of the tests when I'm talking to companies, and I, I, I totally get that not everybody has the luxury of doing this, but if you're fortunate enough, I highly recommend going and sitting in a company's office and seeing how people interact. So for example, when I was starting to look for a new opportunity back in 2017, I was talking to a few companies and two companies I was talking to just diametrically opposed in their cultures. One was Uber and one was LinkedIn. And Uber is looking for a head of marketing for their new B2B operations, their B2B business. And I went in there and first of all, the culture seemed crazy stressed and combative. Everybody had a frown on their face. There was no joy. Everybody seemed stressed out of their mind and kind of angry even in the office. And the person who interviewed me came late about 20 minutes and he had done zero homework about who I was or why I was there. He was super arrogant. And then you contrast that with somewhere like LinkedIn where I went and everybody was super friendly. There was joy and laughter in, in the office and people were kind of high-fiving each other. And you can tell there was a camaraderie of like, them wanting to be with each other. 
And I just left and I, I thought about these two experiences and I thought to myself, you can't pay me enough money to go to a place like Uber. This is you know, many years ago before the scandal hit and everything else. I'm just like, I, I have no desire to go to a place where this is the vibe and this is the culture to go into every single day. And I ended up going and joining LinkedIn and LinkedIn has a wonderful culture. You know, talk to anybody who's been at LinkedIn, They're very happy. They treat their employees well. They treat them like adults. They foster an environment of cooperation. They hire good and compassionate people. I think that comes from the very top. Jeff Wiener is a very compassionate person and lives that philosophy through and through. But it starts at the top um, for sure. And so to me, I think one of those tests is go and see what the culture is like. And of course, if you can't go and sit in the office, even as you're going into an interview, just start noticing. Don't just pay attention to the person who's leading you to the conference room where you're going to have a meeting pay a little bit of attention to how are people engaging? Is there joy? Is there laughter? Does it seem like a tense environment or not? You can always feel that vibe when you're walking through somewhere. And it's a really great way of, I think, getting to know a culture a little bit. And if you can, you know, of course, you should go and do online research and talk to employees who've been there. But I don't know if that's enough. For me, I got to feel it. You know, and it was the same, you know, most of the companies I've joined since. I mean, when I first met Adam Newman, uh, and he introduced me to the culture at WeWork, I was, I mean, people just were so passionate about it. For all the f flaws and things that have been written about WeWork, it certainly was a culture of passionate people who are really motivated to foster this mission of bringing community to everyone in the world. And that was a mission worth fighting for. There's a lot of mistakes made along the way, but I don't think it was, a, it was necessarily around the people who weren't passionate, at least the ones I met. You know, I think there was a lot of been written about earlier cultural mistakes, but when I came in, you know, in the last year, it was, it was not that way. People seemed genuinely motivated uh, to really do great work. And there was a culture of optimism and hope and laughter. Certainly people worked hard, no doubt. But I also think some of the greatest companies, they, they you know, we work hard. That's why the companies are also great because they hire overachievers. Um, but, but you can certainly sense a lot from a company's culture by the way people are interacting with each other. I love that. And I certainly identify with many of those things that you just mentioned around how to identify the right work environment and the culture and the energy and the physical space where you might be working one day if you choose to join that company. And those are critical components of how we make decisions, whether or not we wanna join an organization. And it's a really holistic approach to understanding whether or not we like a company. It's not so much just about the job anymore, but it's everything around it. The people, the environment, the energy. That's what I take away from what you just mentioned. What is interesting is we all bring a very different type of energy to our workspace. And a lot of it is predicated on our experiences and our background. And I think what many people might not know about you is that you came from a country that has very eclectic and beautiful culture, and you moved here for a very specific reason. Obviously, it wasn't easy. Yet again, it was another transition in your life and an important place for us to pause and really think about what was that transition like for you from Denmark to the United States? It's easier doing it when you have nothing to lose. So let me start there. Of course, I mean, I was 21 at the time when I did it. And if you know anything about Denmark, you know that it's a pretty safe, well-evolved country with a good welfare system and kind of safety net. And I always thought, you know what, like go to the US and I don't make it, ah, Denmark is not going anywhere. I can always come back, you know? 
So, so that fear was kind of off the table. And I realized that's a luxury that not everybody had. But that wasn't really the motivation. That was just kind of in the back of my head. The motivation was absolutely about, you know, I, I started a job after college as a, at a, as a Java developer at a small software company in Denmark. And for the longest time, I've been reading all these amazing articles about Silicon Valley, about this magical place where people go. It doesn't matter where you are from. It doesn't matter what your educational background is. It doesn't matter who you know. If you have a good idea or you work hard, you can make it and become successful. But not only that, you can contribute to making the world a better place because most people, I would say in Silicon Valley at the time at least, were very idealistic. They're very mission-driven people. And I wanted to be part of that mission. But I didn't really see a path to get there because it wasn't easy flying halfway across the world. So I started working in this company in Denmark as a Java developer and, you know, building websites and a Java program for a CRM company. And it was so boring. It was one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. It was even worse than love working in a hotel or in a movie theater when I was young. It was so fun. So I was very engaging, but sitting in this boring dead end job, it felt like factory work. But even though it was high tech work on paper, it felt like factory work. People would come at nine o'clock, at 12.30, they'd take 30 minutes for lunch. And then basically at 4.30, they'd exactly on the dot, they'd leave. It's like, where's the passion? Where's the excitement? Ah, screw it. So I went to my boss and I quit. And I bought a one-way ticket to California. And on February 1st, I decided to fly over. Because I always had this driving thought, well, if I don't do it now, um, and I don't want to look back on my life and have regrets of being too scared to do something that I know in my heart that I, I really want to do. Because I feel like my future lies in Silicon Valley. and so didn't have a job, but I just, I applied to a shitload of, of jobs on Craigslist and I had $2,000 with me. I figured that was enough to at last, at least that time, <laughs> not anymore. But at that time, if I spent that money, well, I could last probably about two months before I had to give up and come back. But everybody that was hiring at that point in time, right? And I felt very confident. Well, I know some fundamental skills about how to build web pages and some basic programming. And if I can find a job, then I can start supporting myself pretty quickly. So the first two weeks, I just interviewed with a bunch of companies that had applied for their jobs on Craigslist. And I ended up at the end of those two weeks getting two offers. It was awesome. You know, and, and I'm like, wow, that actually was easier than I thought. The first couple of days, I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express down by San Jose Airport until I found a, a roommate on Craigslist because I couldn't afford staying in a hotel for very long. I found a, a little shitty room on, on Craigslist. So I got a job fairly easily. I found a place to live. And then a month later, in March of 2000, the whole market crashed. And it's just like, what the hell just happened, you know? And my company, I could just tell, was not doing very well. And eventually, you know, I was, I was let go. But yeah, it was the, the driving thought in getting there was absolutely about the misery I was having in Copenhagen because I was so deeply unhappy. I would wake up just like, this is not what my life is meant to be. I've always used that as a motivator in my life. Whenever I've been super unhappy, I'll tell you a story from my time at Salesforce. One of the, the best companies I worked at, the reason I left in 2011, it's not because I didn't like the company or anything like that. It's because I ended up working so much and so hard to make this product I was responsible for, Chatter, successful. And I ended up, I feel like, neglecting my family and kind of just putting all my effort into my work. I felt really like a shitty husband, a shitty dad, you know, to my kid who was only four or five at that point in time. And I just thought, you know, I need to change my life. And so it came from a place of being unhappy with how I was living my life. And I vowed after that, never again. 
I want to become a better version of myself. But I think a lot of the moments in my life where I've changed has come from a deep level of unhappiness with something. And it doesn't always show because on social media, you come across as a happy, fulfilled person. But some of those moments have been the moments that are the most critical. And when you look back on them, you're so thankful for them because they become this turning point in your life where you embrace something bigger and better than you ever thought was possible. It sounds like you've had an immense amount of ambition throughout your life, and that's what's carried you through and helped you land incredible roles, and you've persevered through challenging moments, whether it be moving to America, landing a role, and then ultimately being laid off immediately due to a recession. Recessionary periods are certainly natural, and they're cyclical, and they will continue to happen, but it's important to stay resilient through those moments. What you just mentioned, though, is something that is near and dear to my heart and something that many people talk about, especially in the Bay Area, and it's kind of precipitated throughout the rest of the world, is this notion of work-life balance and supporting our families and finding those moments to decompress. It's not easy because the expectations are high. American corporate environment is always about putting on this persona that you're incredibly hardworking and you're never talking about your flaws. How do we become more human? How do we figure out those moments where we could just take time for ourselves, for our families and really decompress? What's worked for you? It takes a lot of practice in my mind. And I also have a tendency to work too hard. I still probably do if you ask my, my family. And sometimes I think I probably even drive my team too hard. Um, and I have a tendency to just get kind of lost in what I do because I really love what I do, which I think is a good thing to have. But in terms of compassion, I always try to think about how would I want people to treat me or how, what, what are other people going through? So compassion and empathy is so important if you want to be a leader and really trying to feel the truth behind what people are saying or how people are feeling. I think especially as you become a leader, sometimes it becomes a little harder to really know exactly what's going on. You get more removed from some things. So you don't always know how your team is feeling. You don't always know the effects of some of the things that you're saying, how that's being interpreted. So I try to be a lot more clear in my communication and also in my expectation of the team. I've even gone so far in my later years to write the Robin Daniels instruction manual for my team because it gives them an insight into how to work with me. It might sound pompous, but it, at least it takes the guesswork out of it. So it's very detailed about how I like to work, how to communicate with me. It doesn't mean you have to, but at least it shows to me, it's kind of like a person sending out your personality description to somebody saying, I'm an ENFP, which I am in Myers-Briggs, for example, saying, here's kind of my personality type. Here's how I see the world and so on. And I think, you know, if, if, you, if you have a team, it's a great way to kind of like break the ice in some ways. And for example, you know, nowadays with always on communication, text, Slack, Zoom, you, you name it, email and so on. I try to be very clear with, with my team around how to communicate the best way. If you want something urgently, you've got to text me. Slack, I'll be on every now and then. We mostly do work hours. And email, I don't check it as often. And it's just like being, being clear. And, and I don't have an expectation that you're on it all the time. But also saying, if I end up doing stuff in the evening or weekends. It doesn't mean that you have to. And being very clear that just because I sent something out or I asked for something doesn't mean that it's urgent. You know, there's a difference between urgent and importance. 
And you will know if something is urgent. I'll be very clear and tell you, but most of the time it's not. And so don't stress about it. I think about that is because that's how I would have liked to have somebody talk to me or treated me in the same way with the respect of uh, making their own choices. I think right now, of course, is becoming into a lot sharper focus because everyone's lives are blurring together. Everything was harder already. You know, we talked about work-life integration or balance. Now it's just blurry. There's really no dividing line anymore. It evaporated overnight with the, the rise of this pandemic and suddenly you see people with their kids coming into the Zoom meetings or their pets in the background and suddenly there's somebody at the door and you know what? That's all okay. Nothing is that urgent that it can't wait. <laughs> and just having kind of that humanity and understanding, I think is important. And telling to people, go take breaks. You don't have to be online all the time. I think there's a lot of pressure. Somebody said to me, the other day, you know, somebody who's been working from home for years, they said, people are stressing about working from home. But this is not normal working from home. This is working from home during a pandemic. So there's a lot of other things that are playing into it. Your family life, your friend life, are everybody I know okay? What's going on in the world with news? You know, it's not like a normal time when you're just working from home because you've chosen to do so for a week. We've been forced to do so. And it adds a whole different level of stress. So having the empathy and the compassion towards each other and, and really understanding each other's life situation is important. For example, when I started this new job at Matterport, I never met a single person on my team, which is an odd thing to do because in the first month or two, you oftentimes spend trying to get to know someone. Tell me about yourself, your family, and so on. So I really tried very hard in my first meeting with everybody I had. I had a one-on-one with everybody not to talk about work. I did not want to talk about work. I wanted to get to know you. Tell me about you. Tell me about your life. And I probably need to do more of it, but I, I was very mindful because I didn't want to come across as just coming in and as here's what I expect. I think it sets everybody up in the, in the wrong way, especially now, because you have to, if you want to actually create greatness in a team, you have to first get the team to gel together and understand what makes, makes each person motivated. And don't get me wrong, it's only been two months in math, I'm still working towards that, but I, that's at least the mindset that I have is that it can't all be about results, 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 because that's not how you drive, I think, uh, greatness. It's got to be about the team co- cohesion and collaboration. Then you drive greatness in the team, but not just for the individual. You're consistently mentioning the importance of team camaraderie and dynamics and making sure that we foster the right culture around the team. I'm starting to sense a theme, which is that's where the magic happens when successful teams bond really well together. What's helped you be successful throughout your career is constantly building teams that gel together and have that high level of camaraderie to be successful. It actually reminds me of a quote, just having recently watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls team of the 90s. Talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence wins championships. So no matter how good we are as individuals, it's still super critical for us to come together and be able to foster a culture where people operate at their highest levels together. What we do know is to build that type of culture, we have to identify the right individuals to hire onto our teams. And that's not always easy. What is it specifically about individuals that you seek out or that you identify in some of the best performers that you've hired? There's so many good examples that there was a, a woman I work with from a company we acquired called Team. Her name was Sarah. And whenever you would ask Sarah to do anything, like we need to do this, her phrase was always, I'm on it. 
And I just love that. She just had an attitude of leave it with me, I'll get it done. And I just thought that was such an awesome attitude to have about anything. And she might come back and say it's not possible, but she always said, I'll figure it out. And I just love that mentality. There's no task too, too small or too large for me, I'll figure it out. So I love that mentality of, you know, leave it with me, I'll, I'll go figure it out. Especially if you're like a go-getter mentality, I, I love that. I love working with people who are really optimistic and positive. Now, I don't want that to be misinterpreted as you can't be realistic and real about what's happening in a business, but looking at it from a perspective of hope and optimism and how we're going to get out of this versus digging yourself deeper and deeper into a tailspin of negativity and disaster thinking is really something I don't, don't get joy out of because I think it brings the whole team down. So the best people I've seen has a way of lifting everybody out of that kind of salesman that sometimes happens on projects or initiatives or something, or you put something out there that didn't go well, but let's pick ourselves up and think about how, what we can do and change that. So, so I've always loved that as well. Uh, I think creativity is a key skill I've seen in people who succeed and creativity, I think comes in two ways. There's creative ways that you can express yourself. That means through storytelling, through creative endeavors, through writing and so on. But there's also creative problem solving, right? So how you actually look at problems, how you solve those. So it's not about being, oh, are you analytical or are you not? I think there's creative problem solving in both ways. Either you can look at expressive creativity or you can look at creative problem solving where you have really deep, gnarly problems that you have to figure out how to solve. For example, you've got to come up with a new business model. You've got to come up with a new pricing strategy. You need deep technical and probably analytical background to solve that. And you need a lot of creativity if you're going to do it differently or better. And so I've loved that I've always working with people who have a really creative mindset about how to tackle problems and then how to express those problems as well. Um, look back on the key skill of people who have, who have succeeded is communication. And it can't be underestimated uh, how important that is. Or I would say maybe it, maybe it can be overestimated how important that skill is. But communication and all the people I've seen succeed have incredible communication. And again, it's not about introvert or extrovert. It's not about that at all. I've seen some of the greatest introverts be awesome communicators, but it's about how you communicate information and to whom and, and really figuring out speaking a language that gets people to understand what you're saying and then get them on your side. That's such a key skill for everybody. That's why I think, you know, uh, I think it was McKinsey who wrote in one of their handbooks from the 80s that communication is the killer skill that sets us apart. And I always took that to heart. Like communication, if you can master communication, communication with clients, with your peers, with your team, with coworkers, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really everything. Because I've always thought to myself, if you don't communicate something, that's also communicating something. And so you better think about how you communicate something. And that can be written, it can be verbal, it can be on video, it can be a lot of different ways, but communication is such a, such a key skill. And, and I look at some of the people in my career, Jeremy Cooper at LinkedIn is one of the best communicators I've ever worked with. He just, he, he communicates things in such a succinct way. Um, and he does it in a way that gets people on his side. Uh, Kendall Collins, a guy I work with at Salesforce and who hired me into WeWork, Great, great communicator, really great storyteller. You just kind of want to listen to that guy for hours because he's just like naturally a good communicator. But you look at somebody like Jeremy, 
Uh, Jeremy, I would say, is probably an introvert. You know, I mean, he's, he's not always. He can turn it on when he needs to, but he's probably mostly an introvert. He gets, you know, joy out of doing deep problem solving, but he can really be an awesome communicator when he needs to be. And that's so communication is definitely a key skill. So many great shout outs from you as well. And a lot of the things you said are extremely true. I think the overarching layer is certainly communication. It's critical that we consistently improve and build upon it. It doesn't always come innately to people. And truthfully, it wasn't always easy for me. And it took a lot of years of learning and reading and practice to really master those skill sets. So to summarize, it sounds like communication, creativity, a great attitude, and that can-do mentality is really what sets people apart. What you're incredibly good at is storytelling and building a personal brand. And again, a lot of folks out there are yearning and craving to figure out, how do I tell my story? How do I position one experience and into a different company and parlay that experience? What are your recommendations? What are your tips? Do you have books that you'd recommend? There's a lot of books. I actually don't read that many, um, I would say, nonfiction books. I read a little bit of them, and then I always have for 20 or 30 pages, I'm like, ah, I kind of get what they're saying. <laughs> Let me move on. Because, again, maybe because I love storytelling so much. But there's a few. I mean, I love Shoe Dog by Phil Knight because it's, of course, nonfiction, but it's also just a great story you know, about just the failures and the successes of building a global super brand. So I think if you haven't read Shoe Dog, definitely go read that. Um, I think The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a great book. Again, maybe because it's short stories as well. I like like stories, as you can probably tell. And it's just about, you know, the, the, the again, successes and failures of, of building a team, career, company, and so on. So I think th- that's a great book too. But that, I, I read a lot of fiction. I just get a lot of joy out of fiction, really. And I think some of the best books I've read has been that. One of my favorite is a book called Siddhartha by Herman Hess. It's about you know, a young guy who aims to find himself. And he goes on this quest to find himself. And there's a lot of deep self-discovery in that book, which, which I absolutely love. Um, but in terms of storytelling, I think when I left WeWork, I was starting to get a lot of questions, of, of course, about my experience there. And so I thought to myself, you know, in my first kind of moment when I had to explain, I felt like I didn't really come across in the best possible way. I should probably think about the story I want to tell about my year at Rework. So I thought deeply about it. And I thought, okay, well, here's the story arc that I want to tell. And so that's what I started doing when I would go to a conference and give a presentation about it. Or if I would go speak to a VC or a recruiter about, you know, what happened at the last year at Rework, because they would all ask, say, well, here's what happened. And so I just started really thinking about it because if you don't think about it again, somebody else will put that information on you and they'll interpret your language, your body uh, language and so on in their own way. So you might as well be proactive about it. So I just thought deeply about it and said, okay, here's how I would structure the narrative of my, my year of rework. But I've done the same at all the other companies I've been at. So you at least have a story around it. Know, both what's worked well and what hasn't worked so well. And that's fine too, because I think people are very eager to hear what have you learned from your past experience? Because you always get the question, well, what would you do differently and what have you learned from it and so on, which, is a, which are great questions. I don't want to discount them, but you don't want them to take you by surprise. So think about them and then and weave them into how you've become a better person. Um, and that's how I think about it myself. When I have a discussion with someone or a conversation or Oh, here's how I recommend doing something. In the last six months, for example, I spent a lot of time doing advisory work and strategy work with small startups. It was really fun. 
on branding and category creation and go to market and all kinds of fun things. And a lot of it is based on my you know, two decades of experience, both what I've learned to do well and what I've learned you shouldn't be doing. Like a lot of companies want to say, yeah, we want to lean into performance marketing, which is great. You should, and here's how to do it well. But have you thought about product marketing? And many of them say, no, I haven't thought about product. Well, if you haven't thought about product marketing, then you're wasting too much money on performance marketing because you don't have to figure out the story that you're going to hook people with or tell. And so the balance of how to do that only comes, I think, when you have enough experience to really see how the full picture works together, how the, all the different disciplines, writing, storytelling, and how they all fit together and creating a narrative around yourself, your company, your team, and so on. Um, so narratives is what drives, I think, human behavior in your personal life when you're thinking about how you want to present yourself to the world, but certainly also in how you present your company to the world. It's all about the narrative that you want to want people to understand. And it's not always easy, you know, uh, and that can change over time. And I think that's fine. You know, humans evolve, companies evolve, but you just have to be clear and you have to have clarity around it because then once you have that clarity, then you can communicate it with everybody else. You actually hit on one of my favorite books, which is the hard things about the hard things about, uh, how to deal with a lot of those failures, especially when you're starting a company. And it was written by Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz. And he actually wrote a book recently. I think it came out about six or eight months ago. It's called What You Do Is Who You Are. And Ben Horowitz really turns his attention to a critical and imperative question for every single company and ultimately individual, which is how do we create and sustain a culture that we all want to be a part of. And you just mentioned the importance, obviously, of storytelling, not only for the individual, but organizations and their products as well. So we all collectively can do this together. And it's important to build a culture that is sustainable and one that continues to permeate throughout an organization when nobody is watching. And that is arguably the hardest thing to accomplish that we all consistently strive for. Robin, you've done this so many times throughout your career and it's predicated on many of the people that you hired and these teams that you've built out. And it's fascinating to watch it unfold, but it's certainly not easy. And as we're nearing the end of our conversation, there are still a few more questions, simple but important ones that I do want to hit on real quick. You're very active on LinkedIn. If people were to want to reach out to you, where's the best place they can go? Is LinkedIn it or are there other mediums that you enjoy? Definitely LinkedIn. It's my number one source of connection with people. And especially now, it's been awesome during this pandemic to just connect with people in a really genuine way. And I just post a lot of stuff because you know, I post thoughts that either come into my head, either it's observations it's learning from my life or you know it's maybe some advice or something that i that i think about and i usually try to bucket it in it, i mean it's not like i consciously try to 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 think about it this way it's just it tends to be either around marketing because that's where my expertise is or around kind of leadership or just kind of general observations about you know things that i think could be better and so on and of course it, you know I post a lot. Some of it falls completely flat and some of it kind of takes off, but I just enjoy connecting with the community. People always are so genuine. They write back and I love the LinkedIn platform or anything because people take pride in who they are on that platform. You can't hide really who you are. 
And I love that versus the Twitter, Facebook, where I feel like they've kind of become lesser versions of themselves than they intended to be. LinkedIn has stayed very pure. So connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks so much, Robin, for your willingness to connect with many of our listeners. So if you're interested, feel free to find Robin Daniels on LinkedIn. Follow along. He shares incredibly meaningful information on a daily basis. And Robin, I'll ask you to share with everyone right now, more specifically, is there a piece of information that you want many of our listeners to walk away with? One piece of advice is to be sure to look after yourself because then you can look after other people. I think the most important is that we are here in society on planet earth to be a collective set of people who are here for each other. And so it only, we only succeed. This whole experiment only succeeds if we are here for each other. But it starts with actually being sure that you are taking care of yourself, your mental health, your physical health. I put a lot of pride into really trying to, to step away from just doing work to also take care of my emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. Because I know if I do that, then I can be there for other people. And I feel like, again, back to the, how we start this conversation, I feel like a failure if I am not my best for other people. I always feel like I owe it to other people to be the best version of myself. As we wrap up, I want to do our infamous hot seat and ask you two specific questions that I've actually spent today tailoring just for you, just to make this a little bit trickier. So with that being said, are you ready? Go for it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the first question for you is, Robin, describe yourself in five words only. Okay. Energetic, optimistic, passionate, goofy, and active. Love it. Those are perfect adjectives. And the second one for you is if you had to read one book for the rest of time, you couldn't read anything <laughs> else, what book would it be? <laughs> you know, this is hilarious because I have a 13 year old son. He's going to be 14 in two weeks. But he just asked me that question, actually, as we were walking around the other day, but it was three books. It was three books. So uh, the three books that I chose, maybe I'll, I'll cheat here. I'll do three books. I would choose Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, as I mentioned. I love that book. I would choose Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, I am a huge fan of the book. I've read it probably 20 plus times. And I would probably choose a book called the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is a kind of a spiritual Hindu book. Yeah. And again, I'm not really religious, but I just find a lot of like core human truth in that book. Siddhartha is a book about self-discovery. Bhagavad Gita is a book about, I think, human truths. And of course, you know, Lord of the Rings is an epic book about overcoming, which is something I've always been inspired by and friendship and camaraderie and love. And those are some pretty damn good emotions to, uh, to fight for. Awesome. You survived the hot seat, Robin. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate you Thank taking you. the time today and spending your afternoon with us, telling us about the intimacies of all your failures and some of the tribulations that you were able to overcome 
your experience is definitely invaluable. And we'll share all of the recommendations, the books, the tips that you provided live on our website. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thanks, Ed. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Career Meets World podcast. I would love to get to meet you. There are a couple of ways we can connect. You know I love my LinkedIn. Simply search for Career Meets World or Edward Gorbis and feel free to connect. Second is via Instagram at Career Meets World. And third is through our website. I have a special spot for you full of fun, free resources. All you have to do is go to careermeetsworld.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll provide you the free resources to help you boost your career and reach financial freedom. And if this podcast was helpful to you in any way, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people. Simply tap the rate with five stars and leave a sentence with what you liked about the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, strengthening your growth mindset is your ticket to success. I'm Edward Gorbis, and we'll catch you on next week's episode.